This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hello and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Western Wall. <laughs> um, we, we're, I'm taking a few questions today, so uh, you can type in. Maybe you can read comments. If, if anyone wants to ask a question, they can ask. Uh, okay. And uh, so this was a question. Yeah, so I was raised not observant. You want to know why I became observant? Yeah, what, what made you become observant? And then as an observant Jew, what can you talk about the, the practices, spiritual otherwise, that compelled you to stay and grow in, stay spiritual and grow in your observance and spirituality? So what made me become an observant Jew? And then what made me stay? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Two things. One is uh, God, and the other is Torah. Uh, first, God is that I, I when when I contemplated. I don't know why I never came to the God idea. I think that I was so influenced by my millennial, you know, kind of godless environment growing up. I think that I I just never thought about God really because I wasn't raised in any kind of religious setting and. And God just wasn't part of things. And so I just figured God was for, like, religious people. Like, uh, which to me was religious slash dumb. Like, I thought religious people were, were just missing, missing something upstairs. I don't know why. I just did. I just thought they, were, they weren't thinking things out. They were taking uh, someone's... Take someone. They were believing in some narrative of somebody else, and rather than thinking for themselves, they would just take that narrative and and never have really used their own heads to figure things out. Now I don't know why I thought that way because I myself was doing it because I was coming from a perspective of no God because I was raised in a godless world, and so so I think that it, when I came to Jerusalem. I, I met all these people who were really into God, but they weren't just into God, they were into discussing it. And so that was a verse eye-opener, is that these people aren't just into God, they're into discussing God, and whether God exists, and, and how can you know, and can you know, and, and what difference does it make if God does exist? And, and that, which is a very interesting question, because then how biased are you for him not to exist? Like, for example, if one of the things that happens with a God existing is surveillance, well, how would you feel to have a surveillance camera in your bathroom, let's say? Not particularly. How would you like a surveillance camera in your thoughts? Definitely not. You know, you want a surveillance camera and a microphone and everything you say? No one wants that. And so one of the differences that it makes if there's a God is that you're, you're under constant surveillance and who knows if you would be or wouldn't be judged for all of that. Every thought, every speech, every action. Like, who wants that? And so there's great bias away from away from it. I mean, when you add the commandments, then there's extreme bias away from it because who wants to be obligated and all that stuff? And if you don't do all that stuff and you find out they're oblig- it's obligatory, well, who wants to live with all the guilt that would come with all that? And that's going to create great cognitive dissonance such that I would more likely believe there's no God rather than face the consequences of there being a God. Anyway, these are all the. I'm just making up discussions that come up, and that's the, those are the discussions that uh, kind of are the Jerusalem milieu. It's not like the rest of the world of of, of people who observe traditions 
where you just observe it and that's it. In Jerusalem, you call everything into question, but everything into question. And there's no, there's nothing too sacred that you can't ask about it, within it, even in it, in an attack form. There's nothing too sacred that you can't ask about it. And so those conversations were eye-opening. I think one of my first discoveries is they're not dumb. That was interesting. <laughs> These Torah scholars aren't dumb. Another thing was interesting to me is that the majority of the Torah scholars I met were raised secular like I was. Which means these people have made a major decision in their life for the worse. And, meaning in my opinion, it was for the worse. And, and human beings don't do that, ever. Human beings never choose something for the worse. So what's going on here that they're choosing something that's worse, worser? Is worser a word? Not a word. Well, it's what happens when you drop out of school in fifth grade? Start making up words. So, like, human beings, human beings, there's two seats right here. Human beings never choose worse. Ever. You've never chosen, I mean, you've chosen worse, but I promise you if I interviewed you while you were choosing worse, you would explain to me why it was better. That choice. Only later to realize it was worse. You understand, we've all chosen the worse. The worser of the two. But, at the time of the choice, we thought that was the way to go. Just like, you know, you might meet someone under the influence of alcohol doing something really stupid in town. And, you know, I'm making bad choices, but it just seems like the perfect choice at the time. People never choose away from the good. Ever. You know, Hitler, Maximov himself thought he was somehow ridding the world of conscience. and You know, this false, false perception of the conscience and you know he was trying to create a master race that would have no compunction for its behavior and so the and so the the it was interesting to me to meet people when I got to Jerusalem who were clearly choosing a worse thing worse thing which was being observant at that point I would have called them religious today I wouldn't but then I would have called them religious and I and religion's clearly dumb, and 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 it's also, you know, the bindingness of it and the the obligation that surrounds it, all of which is fabricated as a narrative by human beings. So, like, why would you ever choose a narrative that human beings created? First of all, why would you choose a narrative from any human being, other than your own narrative? Given that your narrative's okay, I mean, I hope you have a pretty good narrative, but. Why would you ever choose the narrative of another person? And if you were going to choose the narrative of another person, it better be a good one. But Judaism's a horrible one. I mean, it's just horrific. And it's expensive. Whether it's kosher meat or... Oh, i got to buy a new pair of scissors. I realize I have to order a talus for my brother. and I could use some new ones too. So that's, you know... There's a couple hundred shekels for cosmic dental floss right there. You know? And... Uh, uh, not to mention, you know, not hitting your light switches on Shabbos, which means everything's going to be on all Shabbos, unless you have some fancy timer, which ain't, which also costs money. And the, uh, you know, and then and then there's being fruitful and multiply. I mean, that can get pretty expensive. <laughs> that ain't cheap. <laughs> then, of course, you got to marry them off, because you can't do the old, like, 
let them hang around until they're 38 on cannabis playing video games in their upstairs bedroom. You know, you can't, that's not an option when you got eight kids. <laughs> Who could afford that? So you, so you must make weddings. You must make weddings. You need an exit plan. And if you need that, if you got that exit plan, that means you got to be taking care of those kids to make sure they're, you got some, some good schera. How do you say schera in English? Yeah, you need good merchandise. Which means you got to keep track of your daughters. And you, and you got to keep track of your sons, which means you, sh- you know, they should be quite observant and scholarly and, you know, the whole thing, I mean, I could just keep going. It's a hassle from beginning to end. The whole thing's a hassle that you notice that secular millennialists choose out of big time. Like everything, I mean, you can take almost everything I do and go to the opposite and you'll find a secular millennial. So it was fascinating to me that people that were, had my upbringing had made choices for the worse. Now, I was kind of looking around to see maybe someone's forcing them. Or maybe they're like putting uh, Epsom salt in the water or or they're depleting them of nutrients or sleep. Like, who could get a person to make bad choices? But it was quite the opposite. They were given a comfortable place to sleep. They were being well-nourished. Big Shabbos meals. And, you know, I can't say dorm food's the most nutritious thing in the world, but... (laughs) Certainly, no one was trying to deprive them of nutrients that would make them be bad choosers. And the and the 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 real kicker is that in front of your face at all times is nothing but negativity. You know, like are you going to pray three times a day? Like, gee, that sounds fun. You know, you're going to wear too much clothing on a hot summer day for modesty. Gee, that sounds fun. You know, you're gonna you're gonna be putting on black boxes. Huh. Just what I always dreamed of. <laughs> Where uh, strapping black boxes to my body. Not. You know, never the goal. Okay? <laughs> you understand? Like you're staring at everything wrong with this situation at all times. While well nourished and well slept. You know, so so that was in, that was very interesting. I think one of the most interesting things to me was meeting the people who had made these insane choices in their lives, and their an unflinching, unwavering conviction. They they just weren't turning back for nothing. I mean, you could read the emails their parents were sending them. Well, there was no email ninety one, but you could read the letters or the faxes and be shocked by the pressure they were getting. But, and who was pressuring them? You know who was pressuring them? Who was pressuring them was their main system of sanity. Because what is your system of sanity? I mean, I hate to break this to you, and it might be a little mean for me to say this, but the majority of what makes you sane is the insane people around you consider you sane. And everyone plays the game that, that we're all normal. You understand that. Like, like... If whatever you call sane, like I don't know, where, where are you from? LA. From LA. What what neighborhood? Pico You're from Pico Robinson. You're probably raised observant. Yeah. Okay, semi-observant. Where were you raised? Detroit. 
Oh, really? Were you also raised observant? No. So, uh, what neighborhood in Detroit? West Bloomfield. West Bloomfield. There's something normal about life in West Bloomfield that West Bloomfield Nicks live. But if you go like a thousand miles in any direction, the things that are cool in West Bloomfield just aren't cool over there. Because it's just a different milieu over there. It's a different world, different style. And and certainly a couple thousand miles, you drop a, the top of the heap of the West Bloomfield hipsters, drop them into New Guinea with a parachute. Everyone's coming up to his waist. And he starts doing what's cool in West Bloomfield. The people in New Guinea, I don't know what they'll do. They'll probably eat them. <laughs> it looks like a good snack for the community. So... By the way, I have no idea if people in New Guinea eat people, but the <laughs> I missed that day too. But the point is, is that <laughs> is that we're all coming from total false fictional agreements, and the epicenter of the false fictional agreements that keep us sane, the epicenter of them are our immediates, meaning family and siblings and maybe cousins or aunts and uncles, depending how nuclear your family is. And, and then there's your best friends and the kids at school. I mean, I mean your parents sent you to a... First of all, they named you a normal name. They didn't main, name you like Moon Unit or Dweeble or something like that. They, they gave you a name, and it's not really a normal name. It's just a normal name where you're from in the agreement. You understand? You were given a name that worked for the agreement of that area of the world that you grew up in, that little point on the map. And, and then they send you to schools. There are a lot of options if you grow up in a big city. You grow up in L.A., you grow up in Detroit, you grow up in... Boston. Where? Boston. Boston. There are a lot of choices for education. But you'll notice that the parents will send to the school that more or less holds of the agreements. And this is one of the reasons that when we have vacation, when my family has vacation, we take our kids to, an, to a hardcore atheist, secular artist colony in the north of Israel for vacation. That's our vacation place. Now, it's not that we interact so much with the people there, but we do interact. And um, and we want to take them out of the agreement for, you know, a week or two. Take them out of the agreement and let them come back to the agreements of our neighborhood in Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, give them a little break from the agreements of Jerusalem for a little while. And then we'll, we'll come back to the agreements. And, um, there's a, who are those people? The Amish? Is that their name? Don't they go out of their agreement for a year when they turn 18 or Two something? Years. Two years? So these are people who are very strict. It's a very strict culture. And, and they leave the agreement for two years. Now, I don't know how many people come back, but I think a lot do. I've heard that a lot do come back. after they, they, But when you come back, you're in. You made a choice. And anyway, but the so we're all from this fictional agreement, and the closer they are to you, meaning meaning there's your clo- your f- closest family, then there's your f- your closest friends, then there's your other friends, and then there's acquaintances, and then there's like neighborhood, and then there's town, and then there's city, and and that's all part of the agreement. But you don't care. I mean, do you really care what people in your town were you raised observant? No, and what, where are you from? I was born in Brazil. Brazil. Okay, and it's probably a little nerve-wracking to go back to your parents' house compared to some random neighborhood. Yeah. 
Because do you really give a darn what anyone thinks about you in some other neighborhood in Brazil? You don't go back, but I promise you, the one that would be the hardest to go back to would be your, the one you grew up in. Yeah. Yeah, because there's an agreement there, and you're not keeping the agreement. He's bad at the agreement. You know, you have blown out the agreement with your, you know, your your kippa and your black and white attire, and, and do people even wear suits in that part of Brazil? I mean, maybe. I don't think so. Maybe, yes. <laughs> they wear loin they wear loincloths over there. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, to you. How are you? So, so the closer they are to you, the p- more the more sane you are by playing the game, by playing along with this fictional agreement. So, I'm reading the letters and faxes of the people who are having their only basis for anything sane getting torn to shreds. They're losing them. Meaning they're losing, these people are angry. And they're saying, come home. Come home. Like, stop with this craziness and come back. And so, like, all I'm saying is, like, they're staring at everything you'd never want, taking on obligations that you'd just, like, have to be crazy to take on. And, and meanwhile, the basis of your sanity, which is the fictional agreement you're from, have 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 gone into a full attack, and they're willing to put down the. They're willing to raise a right flag as long as you stop doing this. Just stop playing this Jerusalem game, and get back to your, get back to us, get back to our agreement. And yet they still choose it. That fascinated me. That blew me away. That people were still choosing it, and meaning they're basically letting go of everything. And so that just makes you have to say what's so compelling. What was so compelling that got them to stay? And so one of the things that's the most compelling thing is, is the God question. Where do we come from? And I've narrowed that down to five seconds. And that is that the five-second proof of God. You ever heard of five-second proof of God? Yeah, so, so there's two things you have to know before it. Though. Before there was something, there was... Before there was something, there was nothing. There's something called theoretical physics where you try to figure out what the nothing is because it's really hard to believe that. Because if you believe before there was something, there was truly nothing, so now you're in trouble because what does nothing make? Nothing. So if you believe there was nothing before there was something, which there appears to be, based on all scientists today, that before there was something, there was nothing, so then you'd never have a world. Unless, of course, that nothing is God. If the nothing's God, so then, then you can have a world. If the nothing's truly nothing, you could never have a world. So the five-second proof of God is basically, I didn't do that in five seconds, but I'll give it to you in five now, is before there was something, there was nothing, since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. Got that? Before there was something, there was nothing, and since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, it must be that nothing was God. That's the five-second proof of God. And anyway, but that... but. There was something compelling about the the discussions about God. And here's another thing that was powerful is another thing that's powerful is is that is that it's not the God of the world. 
Meaning, when you're raised secular or Christian or Muslim or however you're raised, not Jewish though, forget Judaism, but if you're raised secular or or even modern Orthodox, maybe, maybe, uh, in the Jewish world, you find out when you get to Jerusalem that the God that everyone believed in or didn't believe in is just not what the Torah is talking about. So the guilty party, i.e. God, is not who it was. It was, you know, once in a while they find someone who was falsely accused, who's been in jail for 20, 30 years. In this case, he's been in jail for a couple thousand years. But once in a while you find a a person that was charged as guilty and sat for years, only later to discover, you know, with modern DNA testing and stuff, they were able to discover that, oh my gosh, we've got the culprit. And then prove it. And then they pull this guy out of jail after 30 years. I don't know what the state does for someone they pull out of jail who's just had their life ruined for 30 years. But you do let him out, and you trust him because he was not the culprit. So that was another interesting thing, was that God wasn't the, the criminal. Because everything that the religions of the world had called God was not God. When you study into Judaism and other traditions too, and Judaism doesn't have the patent on this, but when you study into higher levels of spirituality, you start to understand that God is not who you thought he was. And in fact, there's a great Rebbe, who's a great Kabbalist in, in Jerusalem, that when he says the word you, like blessed are you, which in Hebrew is atah, when he says the word atah, he sometimes will say it many times. You know why? Because he's talking about, he's saying you, which means when you're saying you, you're having a personal conversation. Anytime you use the word you, it's personal. So he's having a personal conversation with a, a being that we call God. But what was his problem? Why does he keep saying it over and over again? Is because every time he was saying you, he kept having in mind something. But God isn't something. And therefore anything you'd have in mind is, could not be God. And so it would be inappropriate to use the word you with something in mind. But good luck having nothing in mind. It's not easy to have nothing in mind. And so he just keeps saying ata until finally he can say the word without something in mind. And then he'll continue the blessing. Because the yud and the he and the vav and he is already a verb. And the elokeinu is a verb. Or it's really kind of a direct object. It's our physical how God manifests. Uh, Hashem is eminent. Hatlokeinu is imminent. So those are like different things. Melech has a relationship as a you know a ruler, a king. So these are descriptions, whereas atah is not a description. The word you isn't a descri- describes nothing. It goes straight to the essence. Anyway, so that was very interesting, is that the, the God that I had found guilty all of my upbringing was... Was I had the wrong guy, so I had to let him out of jail. I had to give him a little chance, you know, give him a chance to be the creator of the world. But being the creator of the world just doesn't tell you much more, you know. It leaves it quite nebulous. But then you look around the world and you start to ask yourself, well, what are we doing here then? Meaning, yeah, if you're an atheist, so you have to ask yourself what we're doing here, and that's a really hard question, because after all, we're all a bunch of random molecules bumping up into each other, and really hard to figure out what we're doing here. 
But if you have a God posited, so now what are we doing here? Well, you, you, it's not going to take you long before you're going to start to consider the fact that deep in your heart there's a wrong and a right. It's conscience. Now, what's wrong and what's right will depend on your education, but you do have that inside you. You can't get rid of it. This is one of the hardest things for the atheist intellectuals to explain away is that conscience. And it's there. You can't get rid of it. No one can get rid of it. Hitler tried. If you read his speeches, he was trying to get rid of it. But you, you just can't get rid of it. And so what's it doing there? And the answer is, well, it must be a guide. Because every time I do what's right, at least based on my random thoughts of what's right, I feel great. And every time I do something that's in conflict with what I feel is good, I always feel kind of bad. So I've got this higher feeling of myself and I have a lower feeling of myself. Gee, let's go for the higher one. Well, what if I could, what if I could develop what's good to, with great detail? What if I could develop what's good with great detail? Well, then I'd just be feeling all the better, wouldn't I? Because I've got, I've got a very intricate and complex version of what's good. It's not a nebulous good. It's a real complex, because the world is complex. And so if I have a complex version of what's good, which obviously is going to have to have a complex version of what's bad, but we don't have to go into that. But if I have a complex version of what's good, and I spend my life aligning with that, and this is still with no Torah, just me developing a complex you know, a complex version of what's good. So I'm going to have a good life because there's a God. And God put this in here because you can't find a person who doesn't have it. We all have it. All of us have in our heart a compass that points north. It, there's, there's right and there's wrong. What that right and wrong is depends on your education. But it exists. So why don't I just make it more complex? Because why don't I make it more sophisticated? And then you look in the Torah, and then, then I start going to Torah classes, because that's what you do when you're in Jerusalem. And we're studying what's right. But details. Meaning, it's not just it's right to return a lost object, but there's a right way to do the right things. And you start to see how fascinating, how fascinating is our sages who explored and 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 organized how to do the right things right. I was on the roof of this building, actually, and a guy came up to me years ago. A guy came up to me and said, said, oh, I found this thing. What do I do with it? Now, I was in the middle of a conversation with this hippie who had done a little too much acid. And the nature of, of acid, of that chemical compound LSD, when, it, when that mates with the human brain, is it shows the person who takes it, it shows them how all is one and all is connected. And so this guy came up to me and says, I realize that I want to be a good person, but that's enough. I don't need anything more than that. Because it's all one anyway. It's all God. And What's the difference? At that point, a guy came up to us. I forget what he was holding. 
Well, it was something of value. It wasn't extremely valuable, but it was something of value. I don't remember what. And he said, I found this. He was coming up to me, basically, but he came up to the two of us on the roof and said, I found this. What do I do with it? And, and the, the hippie guy says, says, keep it. And I, and I said, I thought you want to be good. And he was like, I'm good. And he's like, he's like just, you should just keep it. You know, like, what's the big deal? It's not like someone can't get another one. You know, in the oneness of it all, it wound up here. And, and like, God obviously meant it to go to somebody else now. Now, tell me, if you left something on the roof of our building here, have you let go of it? You let it go? You didn't let it go. Oh, it depends. If you already flew back to wherever you're from, maybe. But if you're still in Jerusalem, let's say, have you let it go? It was there, yeah. Yeah, because you hadn't let it go. Now, had she let it go, it's his. Right? If you walked up to that guy on the roof and said, you know what, I just want you to have this. Is it his? Can she, does she have the ability to let something go? 100%. Well, how do you know when it's a lost object if they let it go? How do you know? And it matters. Because if you want to live a great life, you've got to be good with, with sophistication. Because life's complicated. Life's complex. And so, how do you become good with sophistication? And lo and behold, you open up the Talmud and it goes through every scenario. It's like, how many apples fell and in what area did you find them? You know, And it literally has ratios where like this amount in that amount of space, no one would let go of. This amount in that amount of space, everyone would let go of. But what about like this gray area of this amount in that amount of space? And then, and then it's, well, that's a question. And taking something that someone didn't let go of is what's the difference between stealing and finding a lost object when you steal you've taken something that someone didn't let go of with willingly when you find a lost object you're, and you keep it you've taken something that was not let go of willingly it's the same thing well you better get good at that stuff and I have no notice 28 years ago that no matter what Situation, if you take the transparency, you know those overhead projectors with the transparencies? Or anatomy books with transparency? Then I notice, no matter what situation you take, when you, t- when you take our sage's transparency and you lay it over the situation, it always clarifies exactly what's the right thing. Now you can go do that right thing and you feel good. And in the end, all you're going to have is how you felt in life. And your, how you feel in life will be based on how much you listen to your inner compass or how much you breach your contract with your inner compass. That's how your life's going to come out in the end. Now, again, no God. So then everything I'm saying is, mm, yeah, you'll just have a hell of a time trying to describe why we have conscience. You'll just... You know, you'll have to come up with some theory of evolution, why it's evolutionary beneficial to have a conscience, which it's not, by the way. And the, meaning you can argue both sides. No one can prove either side, but I have plenty of arguments why having a conscience is not 
evolutionary beneficial. The the and that's why God's got his little pearl called the Jewish people. We're his little his little pearl. We're called the the stone the stone that the builders builders represents Westerners. Asaph, the United States of Asaph, the builders, like they just want to build and build and build and build and consume and consume and consume and consume and just make this earth fall away and children lose their fathers to the workforce and, and uh, being raised by females and have our, just our whole society become destroyed. Like, that's the builders. So the stone that the builders despise, that's the Jewish people, has become the cornerstone. You know, in an arch, the, what holds the arch together is that cornerstone at the top. And that's the Jewish people. King David said that the cornerstone that, that was despised by the builders has become the cornerstone of the arch. Because in the end, the whole world's going to realize that this conscience is why God created this world. And that it would even be anti-Darwinist, anti-survival of the fittest. The bottom line is, every time you bring our sages to every situation, it always is with the highest efficacy of how to deal with that particular situation. And things get complex. And God blesses us like he blessed us. Yesterday was the inauguration of, in the Israel, for sure, the highest level mind in this whole country of an English speaker has now become the head of Asia Torah. And he can take, when you've still done the Talmud and you still don't know what to do, you can bring it to Rabbi Yitzhak Berkowitz and he somehow has extra transparencies that no one's ever seen, that he can lay him over the situation with all the nuances. And many of those nuances are purely human. You know, they're personality-based. But he'll lay them on it. You, you go spend, you go hear him speak for an hour and tell me Torah is not true. Just go hear him speak for an hour. And he speaks every week, maybe every day. Just go hear him speak, even about stuff you don't even understand what the hell he's saying. You'll know the Torah is true. You'll know this is real. And I was meeting people like that, including him. 28 years ago, he was a rabbi here. And Rav Noah Weinberg, that's all. I knew Torah was true. All I had to do was hear him to know there was such a person with such transparencies to place over the life, over our lives. I knew it was real. Shalom, everybody. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.